From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Skiing is big business in Colorado, and the issues the industry faces are also big, like climate change. If we could wave a magic wand tomorrow and say we are not producing any carbon at our resorts, Mm -hmm. that would not be enough. So that is the start of our responsibility, is to make sure that our operations are done responsibly. Plus, housing for resort workers and solutions to ski traffic. I sit down with the CEO in charge of Winter Park and Steamboat. Then, as the Air Force Academy grapples with record sexual assaults, a retired brigadier general looks to history for a solution. We can't afford to miss a single tool in the toolbox, and we have for decades, in my view. I'm a firm believer that a knowledge of history changes behavior. so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Skiing is big business in Colorado. The issues the industry faces are also big, from worker housing to climate change to weekend crowds, which we'll discuss now with Jared Smith. He is CEO of Altera Mountain Company, which manages Steamboat and Winter Park, along with more than a dozen other operations across North America. Hi, Jared. Hi, Ryan. I want to start with worker housing. Sure. What is Altera's responsibility when it comes to affordable housing in these mountain communities? Yeah. We certainly have one, uh, and we certainly have one that we, we take really seriously. You know, it's, it's always been expensive to live in, you know, destination towns or resort towns. But really, since COVID, with, you know, the advent of work from home and a lot of the flexible work uh, schedules, an already difficult living environment has gotten even more squeezed. A kind uh, of COVID crunch. COVID crunch, like like in a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. How do you address that as well, a ski company? <laughs> so to the responsibility part of that, you know, we go from 7,000 employees that are full-time year-round to about 24,000 full-time year-round over the course of, of the season. It's so a tripling. It's a tripling. In ski season. Of our headcount. Okay. And the vast majority of those are, are people who need a place to live. And we we have taken a really, really aggressive approach to it over the last two or three years in everything from converting hotels to workforce housing to you know, master leasing uh, apartment buildings or or hotels. And then we've poured a lot of money into building from the ground up some workforce housing that we think is is best to breed. Does that mean that Altera owns buildings? We do. H- housing? We do. Uh-huh. We own a lot of housing. Okay. And is that growing, that portfolio? It is. In, in fact, over the last, you know, two years ago, we set a goal for ourselves to double the amount of, of beds that we have available or rooms that we have available for employee housing across the portfolio. And we have, we started with thousands and we're looking to, to, to double that number over the next couple of years. I mean, it's fascinating to me that you're as much a housing company as a skiing company to some extent. Do you think that's true? I don't know that that we're. I don't know that that's entirely true. But uh-huh. I would say that housing is is as big a part of our operation as any of the other things that we do. Right? You know, these ski resorts are they are communities in in little cities in and of themselves. You know, we are in many cases we're the housing, we're the retail shop, we're the food and beverage shop, mm-hmm. we're uh, have huge you know maintenance capabilities and uh, and facilities. And in many cases, sometimes not in Colorado, but in others, we may be the water company, we may be the electric company. Uh, wow. So there's, the they're really town. complex. They are company definitely town. company towns. Well, I don't know. Take us on the ground to a community. Like in, in Winter Park, I know you've built new units for sure. Yeah. So Winter Park is our most recent uh, workforce housing project and candidly are a test case for trying to do it from the ground up. So that is um, building the housing, build, literally building the housing conversion. as opposed to converting, uh, you know, or, or leasing apartments. So 
300 beds across two buildings. But that is fit for purpose, purpose built. Every every bed has a has a door. Really, really nice top of the line workforce housing in the industry. Okay, climate change now. Even if your company were a hundred percent renewable, the very picture of sustainability, Jerry. Yeah. So many of the inputs are carbon intensive. So I'm thinking, namely, of the cars and planes that get people to your resorts. How do you see your responsibility beginning and ending? Yeah, so, so you're right on the, if we could wave a magic wand tomorrow and say, we are not producing any carbon at our resorts, mm-hmm. that would not be enough. So that is the start of our responsibility is to make sure that our operations in and of themselves are done responsibly, that we are participating in in the greenification of maintenance facilities and trucks and all of the things that we do. And we're doing that pretty seriously and, and recently announced some goals around carbon neutrality in, in 2030 and a commitment to get on 100% renewable energy in our operations by 2030. To your other point, the induced travel, you know, what is the, the carbon footprint of cars and planes that come to participate in, in the resorts or, or to ski at our places? It's obviously a, a much more complex answer for us. The number one thing that we can do is take care of our own emissions. And then from there, the greatest thing we can do is try and advocate for responsible you know, travel, encourage EV use, control. And, and, and what does get, that look like? For, for us, it looks like uh, on-site uh, availability of, of charging stations wherever we can, opportunities to use non-traditional travel like trains wherever we can. We have a unique opportunity here in Colorado to, to do that been working with uh, with the governor's office and the state on their plans to to use old commercial lines and turn that into passenger rail uh, opportunities which particularly could hit, reaching steamboat at winter park and steamboat and, uh-huh. and some others along the way so that's a big initiative of ours and so then, there's a kind of lobbying when it comes to transportation that feeds in yeah that you don't have direct control over. Yeah, so it's it's the stuff that we can tr- control, the stuff that we can contribute to, and then the advocacy that we can do uh, on behalf of the stuff that is over and above that. Could you imagine ski resorts lobbying for like more efficient planes or better fuels? I, I really am trying to understand like the scope could go so far, Jared. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I think I think generally. Good climate legislation is is comprehensive, and it it can be, you know, a- advocacy or legislation that that encourages you know more efficient travel. Trains is a good example of that. More efficient fuel usage, more efficient water usage. We've got targets to to reduce and become more efficient with our own water usage. What we're advocating for is is for good common sense climate legislation at the local, state, and federal level. And whether or not that is directly related to resorts, I think is is a little bit nuanced. Mm-hmm. We we are encouraged by anything that is common sense that's gonna that's gonna help the world stay below those thresholds. Winter Park debuted a sculpture meant to honor the Arapaho land that it sits on. Yep. You've also changed some signage to reflect this history. Uh, should you be doing more? Yeah, I think we could always be doing more, but we have we have over the last several years really committed the company to uh, making sure that we we are doing good in the communities that we operate in, and we operate in a lot of you know traditional lands that were First Nations lands, both in the in the U.S. and in uh, Canada in particular. So, is it largely curation, or is there something more like economic contributions, or you know, making sure that some number of jobs. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. What does it look like? Yeah. I mean, today, today it's, a, it's a lot of curation and education. And, and we're hopeful that that creates relationships where, you know, employment opportunities or training opportunities, depending on, you know, wh- wh- which community that you're talking about. It can take a, a bunch of different forms. One of the things that we try to do at Altera is, from a company perspective, is to empower our local resorts to reach out to their local communities to do what makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big part of our ethos to make sure that we're you know, creating the flexibility and the funding for our resorts to do stuff that is authentic and meaningful. And that could take a bunch of different forms. Yeah, well, give us an places. example of one you're particularly 
impressed by? In Canada, we run a, a heliskiing operation called CMH, uh, Canadian Mountain Holidays. We have... Uh, heliskiing, by the way, strikes me as one of the more rarefied... This is kind of up there with polo. It is a small number of people who have an opportunity to, to do something that is, that is truly spectacular and is the pinnacle of the sport, to be able to reach out to, to parts of nature in some really untouched parts of the of the world in this case the the northern rockies of british columbia but a lot of that a lot of the the land that we are fortunate enough to operate on up mm. there is first nations traditional first nations lands and the the relationships that we have developed with the first nations bands and there are many of them in that area to do things like joint education on the diversity of, of the environment there on advocacy for wildlife that could be endangered in, in those territories. And then programs for youth to be able to use use our facilities and, and some of the uh, equipment that we have up there to do summer camps and, and training and workforce training there is, is a really, really good example of some of the outreach work that we're doing. What does it look like I mean, I suppose there's a diversification of the skiing public, and then there's the diversification of the workforce. Mm -hmm. Are those related? Are those two very different enterprises? I don't. I think. I think in general they're they're related for sure. We do we do a lot of work, and we have a lot of diversity in our workforce, and in many cases more diversity in the workforce than we do in the in the guest base. Mm -hmm. uh, in a in a good portion of that. It comes from the internationalization of our workforce and that you see throughout the, the ski industry and, and have for a long time. Sure. On the guest side, traditionally, the sport has been difficult to embrace. It's not the cheapest activity. It's not adjacent to you know major metropolitan areas by and large. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the benefits that you have seen of kind of the advent of, of multi-mountain passes is that it's, it's become more economical. It's the the ability on Icon Pass or or Epic Pass and, and some of the other products that are out there to do an awful lot of skiing on a on a much much lower you know per day cost has been really fantastic for the sport overall. You you have seen a connection between that and a diversification of who's skiing. Yeah, well, yeah. what you see is a is a direct connection between the the price of the passes and an increase in overall participation. And not only is there more visitation overall, there's more new entrants coming into the sport. And, and generally what you see underneath that is of the new entrants, the new people are more diverse than those who have been skiing for a long time. So it's still early days, but I, I think it's going to have an impact. The, these kind of mega passes, yeah, Icon, Epic. And it does mean that walk-up lift tickets <laughs> are just in the stratosphere at yeah. this point. Yeah, is, I, is that a, a a specific tactic that ski resorts are using to drive people towards passes? I, there's there's definitely a benefit to the ski companies to drive people towards a more affordable product and to a pre-commitment going into the season. But the reality is it's a it's a very very expensive operation. Your overhead is huge. Overhead is significant and to to be able to offer a a great product and value in the multi-mountain you know, ski pass I and mean, have that price come down, some of that price gets offset on a, on a daily ticket basis. You know, one of the, one of the common complaints on the other side of the value of, of, the, of the ski passes has been that there's more people on the mountains. <laughs> and, and that is true. Well, I'm glad you, you have provided the perfect segue because I wanted to ask you about crowding. Yeah. Traffic. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you don't manage highways, but um, is is expansion the answer? Is it making the resorts bigger? Well, there's there's a little bit like everything in life, right? It's it's a mix. There isn't a if there was a magic wand for any of the stuff, we all would have pulled it a long time ago or, or waved it a long time ago. But it's it's a mix of all of those things, and all of these are things that we're doing actively at one of our resorts: increased parking, increased lodge and skier services buildings, increased lift capacity more lifts or faster lifts, increased terrain, you know, making the mountain literally bigger. Oh, right. Okay. And then take us beyond the immediate resort. Yeah. So I think the the, the biggest challenge, I should say the biggest challenge, but one of the biggest challenges here in the, the Denver metro is obviously the 70 corridor, cars getting, you know, to and from the ski resorts. And there we're really struggling as an industry, and it's not, it's definitely not limited to Colorado, 
but the advent of fewer fewer people per car. You know, post-COVID, you saw a pretty dramatic decrease in the number of average people that would come up. Uh-huh. More cars are coming with one or two people. Um, well, why do you think that's related to the pandemic? I mean, I guess we didn't all want to pack into a car with... Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, the going thesis. Uh-huh. Um, and then that that just kind of persisted. It seems like it has persisted as, as new behavior, but it's, seen, it, it's definitely leveling out. And in some places, we're, we're taking that down. And, and the industry, not just us, but the industry is doing things to encourage that, right? So some places where we have paid parking, if you carpool, you know, it's, it's free or it's less. Things like that to try and, you know, incent the behavior that, that makes it a better experience for everybody. Fascinating. Not and, to mention and, uh, lobbying, for instance, or helping the advent of a train. Which would be, we think, an incredible opportunity that's pretty unique within Colorado, right? To have the train lines where they are and... And to have an advocate like we've had with with Governor Polis here in the state to, to do something you know non traditional and creative to solve a problem has been awesome. Would Altera ever help pay for a train? Well, w- in some cases we do subsidize some uh, some transportation in in different markets, um, <laughs> and and sometimes that's trains, sometimes it's airplanes, some sometimes it's you know local local transportation. So and what about this Colorado idea? So th- it's pretty early days in that, but okay. we're we're definitely has uh, has Polis asked. Well, we've we've had a lot of conversations with his office about what the you know what is the federal program going to be, what is the state program going to be, and then what's the local program, and then how does that all come together, and what's the need going to be. So okay. it's, we're a little bit early to understand exactly what the economics are. But the conversation is open. The conversation is definitely open. Uh, an existential question before we go: When you look at long-term climate models. Do you prepare for resorts you operate now simply to become inoperable? Well, we think we're we think we've got a really really you know based on the the long range models that we look at and we as you can imagine spend a lot of time uh, looking at models and talking to experts. We think the the more common scenario decades out from today is that you will lose you know, some some temperatures at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. Okay. And the good news for the ski industry is the beginning of the season and the end of the season is the least profitable, the the least uh, impactful from a visitation standpoint. Yes, but of course, the profitable stretches are getting shrunk. Uh, not as much as, as, as you would think. Oh. Models don't show, you know, that you're you're eating into the mainstay of, of, the, of the season. The core of the season, I th- we think, is going to be very strong for a very long time. And then on the other sides of that, where we might have less snowfall in some places, snowmaking efficiency and coverage is getting so much better, and we're investing a lot in those, where we can really ramp up and then harvest, harvest snow throughout the season for the end of the season. So we think we have a we think we have a really strong business for a very long time that we can mitigate a lot of the the kind of shoulder impacts that we might see in the next couple of decades. Jared, thank you so much. Great to chat with you today. I appreciate you having us on. Jared Smith is CEO of Altera Mountain Company, whose holdings include Steamboat, Winter Park, and the Icon Pass. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. When you hit the open road in Colorado, rest areas are a welcome sight. When my husband and I had kids, we'd stop at a rest area, let them run around, have some lunch, continue our journey. 20 years ago, travelers could stop at more than 35 spots spread out across the state. But these days, rest stops are harder to find. Why have so many closed? Read the story from Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. With support from the Colorado Health Foundation. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver has struggled to shelter tens of thousands of migrants who've arrived from the southern border. Many have landed on city streets. But about 300 people recently found sanctuary and more in an old motel on the edge of town. Denverite's Kevin Beatty has this story. Pedro, did you eat? Young Cha Prince has been up since dawn, as usual, making breakfast for guests staying in her old motel in North Denver. I get up 4 o'clock in the morning, make coffee, make egg, bacon, bacon and cheese. She's done this for decades, but she's cooking for a different crowd these days. A few months ago, she was ready to shut this motel down forever. Her son and husband died in recent years. She was painfully lonely, and her home and business were falling apart. I miss my family, I think. 
But right before she closed, a stranger showed up in the middle of the night with six boys from Venezuela. They'd been sleeping outside, and they shivered in the cold when she met them at a nearby gas station. Christina Ascension still gets emotional when she thinks about that night she met Prince. She was so good. She opened her door. I was so afraid that she was going to say no because I had been sitting at 7-Eleven for five hours, calling people, asking people to help. Prince said they could stay for free. Ascension took the boys to grab their bags where they'd set up camp and discovered scores more people, men, women, and children, hunkered down in the cold. She went back to the motel and asked Prince, what did she have to do to get the rest of these people inside? Prince just said, bring them over. When I started bringing people and she was like, it's okay, just, you know, come back and help the next day. Like, I went home and I was like, God, thank you so much for her. Prince's motel was full in a few days, with over 300 people sheltering in her aging rooms. Ascension tried to help get some into regular shelters, but she was turned away over and over again. More than 30,000 migrants have arrived in town since last December, adding to the thousands of unhoused locals already clamoring for somewhere to sleep. So everyone just stayed. They've been living here together, eating together, celebrating together. Prince makes three meals a day with food that she bought or that was donated by a group of moms organized on Facebook. Dana Miller, a member of that group, helped bring Christmas presents and throw this party for the children living here. It's an act of love, bringing them food and clothing and all sorts of things, including Christmas. Brings a little joy to people who've been through a pretty traumatic journey. So we're honored to be here to help brighten their holiday season. But the motel has attracted some unwelcome attention, too. Inspectors from the health department have been posting violations on Prince's door for months for rooms with broken sinks, toilets, and doors. On top of the time and money she spent to keep these people safe, she's also contending with at least $40,000 in fines. The city said we got too many people here. You would like the city to help you make this more official? Yes. Whether her finances become unmanageable or a long quarter developer buys the place, everyone here knows this will not last forever. They say it will be a sad day when everyone scatters. But for Prince, she has found renewed purpose and meaning in caring for everyone. They're so happy here. Everybody called me mama. I need it. I was lonely two years without my son. Her guests feel the same. Marvin Torrealba is from Venezuela and has been living here since Prince opened her doors. I already feel like this is my home, he says. And all of us here, we treat each other like family. That's why we have to take advantage of the time that we're here. So while it lasts, this accidental, unusual family is taking comfort in each other's company as the nights get colder and the city's migration crisis continues outside. Anybody hungry? Come in. Kevin Beatty, Denverite. See Kevin's photos and read his ongoing reporting on this issue at denverite.com. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a novel yet historical approach to fighting sexual assault at the Air Force Academy. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Is that old car of yours taking up valuable space? Free up some room and make a difference by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is safe and easy. You just have to find the title and the keys and we'll handle the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Fuel the news and music you rely on by donating your car. Find out how on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Sexual assaults at the Air Force Academy were at record highs, according to data from the spring. Especially disturbing because 20 years ago, a national scandal broke about the very same problem at the academy. There were rule changes then, new training, prevention offices opened at U.S. military installations worldwide. Yet here we are. Well, CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce has spoken with a leader who has the long view and a unique solution. Hi, Dan. Hello, Ryan. Tell us about retired Brigadier General Mark Wells. Wells was the head of the Academy's history department from the year 2000 until he retired in 2016, though his involvement with the school far predates that. He graduated from the Academy in 1975. And, you know, relevantly or ironically, that just so happens to be the year before it accepted its first female cadets in 76. Mm. 
He then first came back as a teacher in 1983 to the now gender integrated academy. And he told me about some worries he had even then. I remember one time in the classroom, uh, in a classroom with all men, and they knew I was a graduate. These are cadets. These are 18, 19 year olds. And I had the sense that some of them were testing me to see, uh, I'm going to use an expression, sort of a good old boy that somehow I might, since I was an older graduate, what did I think of uh, young women at the Air Force Academy? Now, this was 83. So this was the first class graduated in 1980. And I remember a couple of things occurred to me. One was Maybe once again, naively, I thought, aren't these young people beyond this? Because young ladies have been here for some time. I would come down on them because I I'd lived in the South and I, I knew that this sort of probing and testing to see if I would express views. And I had just come from teaching people how to fly and teaching instructors how to instruct. And I had flown with any number of highly competent female pilots. And, and apart from everything else, I had an obligation to do what the American people had directed us to do. So that was just kind of a feeling I had. So I made it clear to these young people uh, whenever I had this feeling that, hey, I got news for you, you know? <laughs> this is not something that's open for debate. And if you, you have issues, you can find another place to go to school. I wasn't stupid. I knew that there would be issues as the Air Force adjusted to increasing numbers of young women, not just at the academy, but young women pilots and all the rest. The, the, the Air Force was going through a transition. Wells then leaves the academy for other missions, gets a Ph.D. in military history and war studies from King's College London. He returns to the academy as a professor in the mid-90s. And Dan, what does he see then? Initially, he thought things were going well on this front. You know, he points out any campus environment is going to have misbehavior. You're going to have partying. You're going to have alcohol use, all the rest of that stuff. And there were reports of sexual harassment and assault, though it it seemed to Wells they were being handled appropriately. In 2003, though, that's when all that changed. Right. When a survey finding 12 percent of female cadets where victims of rape or attempted rape came to light. More than one in 10. Huge story. And uh, it leads to congressional inquiries and investigations, which found senior academy leadership had long known about this without taking action. And Wells says he and his colleagues were just stunned. That was a very, very difficult period for the institution. At one level, you're saddened that your school has these kinds of problems. You think, no, of all the schools in the nation, this this is the one that deserves the, you know, the service academies deserve a great deal of scrutiny, are proud of their standards and stuff. And when the institution itself fails to meet standards, that's something that needs to be corrected clearly. I will tell you that I, this is just Mark's impression, that some very, very good people who worked very, very hard, loved the Air Force, uh, loved the academy, and were as opposed to any of these kinds of criminal acts as could be, nevertheless were caught in the crosshairs and, and suffered personally and professionally as a result. In the wake of yes. this initial scandal in the, yes. the early and, and I, Well, I had the impression there were leadership failures, in my view, poor leaders that had, had uh, held these young women accountable for ridiculous rules when the penalty for being sexually assaulted, you know, it, it, uh, it is not, you know, not to be uh, discouraged from coming forward and, and, and marginalized or further attacked or uh, assigned some trivial, I mean, assigned a punishment for violation of academy rules. We were talking about criminal activity. I mean, so, so if an 18, 19, 20-year-old young woman had made the mistake to drink or violate some cadet rule, the penalty is, is not to be sexually assaulted, for heaven's sakes. Ryan, to make that last point clear, these investigations found that women alleging assault were often discouraged or ignored, that these women were also at times cited for violations of rules like underage drinking while the assault cases went nowhere. And I want to note there was a rule change just in the last few years that a cadet can now report a sexual assault without fear of punishment 
for those sorts of low-level infractions. It's a sort of amnesty. But there needed to be something similar for leadership uh, because Air Force Academy leaders were afraid that if sexual assault were reported under their supervision, they'd face consequences. Yeah, and see, part of the underlying problem that was found in 2003 was there were sort of incorrect incentive structures because if a cadet in uh, the squadron a leader was responsible for was accused of assault, it was feared that that would then reflect poorly on that leader. And that leader might then feel they'd be held back from a promotion and therefore would want to keep things quiet. Uh, As we've noted, in 2003, this scandal leads to big changes. Oh, yeah. Uh, There were leaders pushed out afterward, and people did lose their jobs. Cadets, faculty, and staff were now all undergoing sexual harassment prevention training. There were now the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, or SAPR, offices in place. A ton of focus was being put on this. We had some very, very graphic training that resonates to me to this day about, albeit a very, very tiny number of uh, sexual predators, their strategies, and how even with the most extraordinary selection techniques that a very, very tiny number of people, notwithstanding great SATs and scores and wherever they come from, a tiny number of men are sexual predators and they will use sexual strategies lifetime, you know, to take advantage. And now I'm not talking simply just harassment. That's bad enough, making somebody feel unwelcome, not part of the team. But I'm talking about actual sexual assault broadly defined, but all the way up to rape, as you can imagine. And I remember this expert quite vividly saying, no amount of behavioral science class and sitting around and holding hands and training and discussion and all the rest will have the slightest impact. This expert said, you identify them and you incarcerate them. That's what you do with these these kinds of people. And I thought, my goodness, um, I'd like to think uh, that the greatest, uh, these institutions, the academies, will have a rather more success in identifying and bringing in the very best of our young people. There was so much effort and so many resources brought to bear on this problem, stemming from that scandal in the early 2000s, up until the modern day, and yet as we've seen, the problem doesn't seem to be getting better in fact, it's getting worse. What are you thinking about that as somebody who who dedicated so much of your life to that institution that two decades of effort on this have not yielded real progress? I'm being as honest as I can be and only expressing a personal view, but I don't think our approach to the issue has changed much since the 2000s. I'm not incidentally attacking the diligence, honesty, integrity, the compassion and energy of any of the people that I served with. I admire them in many ways. But here we are 20 years plus after, and it's a variation on a theme. We're going to double the sapper office and the number of people engaged. I don't want to minimize the fact that the Air Force has changed its approach in in the sense that sexually assaulted men or women can come forward privately or they can come come forward in a more public way and seek justice and, and the help that they need. But I think much of this is just a variation on the thing. We've been doing the same things. That it's variations and different levels of intensity of the same tactics to solve the problem you might see. I, I think so. And I think we can't afford to miss a single tool in the toolbox, and we have for decades, in my view. The fact that these things have continued, I kept looking for what can I do? And uh, I'm a firm believer that a knowledge of history changes behavior. If you if you think about the great story of America, uh, challenges, failures, I believe you're less likely to assault a, a teammate, a member of our great Air Force family, if you know, for example, what women have done across time to contribute to American society, what immigrants, what African-Americans, what those that have different genders and different sexual orientations. I mean, if you know this kind of rich history, how we've overcome challenges and we've endured tragedies and some of the most reprehensible behavior, that doesn't make you less patriotic or less committed 
uh, to the Air Force or to the nation. It makes you more committed. And I'm, I'm not the only historian who suggests a knowledge of history helps change behavior. So the discipline of American history has become weaponized. It's a cudgel for one side or the other to use, and it bears on what's happening at the nation's service academies. Again, that is retired Brigadier General Mark Wells, who led the Air Force Academy's history department from 2000 to 2016. And Wells, he looks to history to find some approaches further and further outside the scope of what's been done so far to address this problem of sexual assault at the academy. Because here's the thing. Early on at the beginning of the academy, the, say the 1950s and 60s and so on, cadets had four required history courses, American history, military history, air power history, and world history. That's been getting winnowed down for for decades in favor of other courses now considered more essential. Say a great example would be more science, technology, engineering, and math classes. STEM, STEM stuff. Sure. So four history requirements were eventually dropped to two, world history and military history. American history was removed back in 1986. And Wells says the thinking was incoming cadets were getting enough of that in high school. And to be fair, the cadets at the time, with some justification, think they're being overworked. And if a course has some repetition from something they got in high school, they're going to complain about it. But clearly, college-level uh, American history courses are rather more challenging than some uh, 15-year-old high school sophomore in a variety of states. Point was, the American history course came out. And nevertheless, there were people who argued strongly it would have a negative impact on the professional development, the gender, race relations, and all sorts of secondary and tertiary impacts by taking the course out. Since the mid-'80s, I could bury you in congressional studies and details and newspaper articles and all the rest, notwithstanding even contemporary events that we are raising a generation of historical illiterates about their own country. I made it clear early on that, one, I didn't think cadets were terribly overworked, and two, I didn't intend to attack another colleague's course. I understand the importance of STEM engineering and basic sciences and all of that business, of course, in an increasingly complex world. So we got to the point where we had it. We had data. We had tested uh, cadets. National test data was available. It's still available. You can check it. A significant number of entering cadets from the nation's high schools come with validation or transfer credit based on AP courses or IB, International Baccalaureate courses. Well, we tested them, and the test scores, as you might imagine, from high school were awful, awful. And we were permitted to identify about 200 of those cadets, and we we didn't ask them. Uh, Some of them weren't real happy, but we put them in a test course in American history designed by the department. And not surprisingly, after a semester, at the end of the course, their scores, their knowledge, their fluency with American history went up dramatically. This is a college-level American history course that struggles with the great challenges, the issues of the United States over time, and not, you know, a 10th grade high school history course. The, The superintendent at the time was supportive, and the course was a success by by the metrics and data we had. And I've had conversations that reflect a sense of disappointment that we didn't we didn't go further. So we came close, and I thought we had data that would support it. Knowing you come from this particular perspective, and you'd like to see a more robust American history education as a required part of the cadets' experience at the academy with its particular relationship to the sexual assault problem. To what degree do you feel you're having success with that angle on trying to address the sexual assault problem? Well, I I do think that's a dimension. You could have lessons on gender relations, uh, women's history, African-American history. If people understand the contributions of all Americans, they're less likely to attack them, marginalize them. We know that sexual assault has to do with domination, a sense of superiority, and all the rest. It's power uh, and, and, and has less to do with sex, I'm given to understand. So I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that if you study 
American history, American society in that way, that you'll have a positive impact. You certainly couldn't, can't do any worse than they're doing now and simply move from one crisis to another and re, rebrand what we're doing. I would say, backing up parenthetically, one of the tests we gave these kids when I said we'd set up a test course was to see if they could pass the immigration and naturalization, you know, the citizenship, and scores of them couldn't. I mean, the scores were abysmal, as you can, you can imagine. So, and what can be more essential to an American officer in the armed forces than an understanding of the history of his own country and its society? And I, I think, honestly, if more members of Congress were aware of the uh, these kinds of challenges faced by the service academies, they take they take action. Hmm. I mean, clearly Wells feels the cadets would be well served learning more about American history. But Dan, the connection to sexual assault and and prevention seems tenuous to me. I think it's a hopeful connection, right? It's back to that idea that, hey, we have been trying so many things that have not made the impact we're wanting. Maybe if we try more methods to dig into a cadet's core understanding of the world around them, maybe that could lead to all those other approaches, say the trainings and and all of that, lead to those things just landing better. Has this gotten any traction, the idea to once again require American history? So Wells says when it's been brought to the academy directly, he's essentially heard that they're happy with the requirements where they are and that it's not a priority. I will note the Army's Academy, West Point, and the Naval Academy do have some form of American history requirement, and sexual assault cases have been rising at those institutions, too. Although I gather those courses may not have the emphasis Wells is talking about, like a special focus on the contributions of American women and other marginalized groups. There's a group of Air Force Academy alumni called Zoomies Against Sexual Assault, or Zasa. They had a meeting this spring where they discussed in detail how a a course like this could help. Also, the Academy's Board of Visitors, that's this advisory board of dignitaries appointed by the U.S. president, vice president and, and Congress. They had a meeting in April and they discussed this and expressed some interest. And Mark Wells himself, he sent about 50 letters to members of Congress on the issue in the past year. He says he's recently received two responses, one from a senator and one from a congressman wanting to learn more about the proposal. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CBR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Dan Boyce, our Southern Colorado reporter, joins us from Colorado Springs, where the U.S. Air Force Academy is trying once again to prevent Uh, what appear to be record numbers of sexual assaults on campus. We're hearing about one potential solution that has to do with reshaping curriculum that cadets are exposed to on campus. Dan, you were going to end the discussion here, but I understand a thought kept dogging you. Well, yeah, I kept thinking about what retired Brigadier General Mark Wells had been saying about history being used as a cudgel these days by partisan interests on the left and the right. And I was remembering the swirling controversies in the last couple of years about the teaching of critical race theory in high schools. And I was just thinking like, man, look, you're proposing to put special emphasis on the contributions of women and marginalized groups. Meanwhile, there are many on the political right and and the political center right now, frankly, who argue that race, gender, and identity are exactly the issues being weaponized by the far left to push the adoption of hyper-progressive policies. So this just kept running through my mind, and I finally I called Wells and asked him about it. What difficulties might all that pose in developing the kind of uh, great challenges American history curriculum you're arguing for? What's the danger in turning off some of the very cadets you're trying to reach who might see the very approach in itself as a form of woke propaganda or something? And how would you combat that? Well, I'd answer it this way, Dan. I don't think there's any danger at the Air Force Academy that a study of American history, if it's reintroduced, would be used, co-opted in some way 
to advance hyper-progressive uh, policies. We're talking about a college-level course in American institution values and critical issues at a service academy. In other words, how has American society and values changed over time if they've changed at all? I more mean seeing how polarizing those topics are right now. Do you think that that awareness of that perception may be important in preparing such a course? You're absolutely right. As a result of my length of time in the Air Force and the senior position at the Air Force Academy, I guess what I'm saying is I have extraordinary confidence in the academic acumen and professionalism of the faculty and staff. And these folks will be fully aware of what's going on with regard to the study of humanities and history nationwide. What I'm saying is there's very little danger that a course would be constructed, you know, there would be danger of historical propaganda. What you'd see is uh, critical thinking and robust analysis and free expression. And the other thing with regard to this, we designed the course in a way appropriate to college level, academy level, American officer candidates who are going to serve globally. And I would never underestimate the abilities of today's college students and most certainly cadets at the Air Force Academy. They're not simply going to sit in classrooms uh, prepared to accept simplistic explanation as a very complex historical and controversial event and then feed them back on a test. They don't blindly swallow what a professor, you know, suggests. They're smarter and more engaged in that. At the same time, the best study of American history at the Air Force Academy would write challenge cadet to to examine, you know, previous points of view and, and make them flexibly sort of consider alternative explanations, accept new processes, and understand that the study of history can always be modified by new avenues of inquiry or questions or something like that. And we're not talking about avoiding controversial historical events or trying to persuade cadets to a particular point of view. But to get these future officers to think critically and flexibly about the values and events that constitute what I've been calling the American historical mosaic. Believe me, my successor to the department head and every member of the faculty who would be tasked, you know, to teach American history would be acutely aware that there would be considerable interest and examination from outside in the context of what's happening in the country today. Mark Wells, former chair of the history department at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, uh, Dan. It was uh, it was just an honor for me to be here today. Thank you. Well, Dan, thanks for sharing your reporting. You bet. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce on preventing sexual assault at the Air Force Academy. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It may be called the Canada lynx, but the wild feline with black tips on its tufted ears and tail has been recorded in Colorado since the 19th century. If you encounter one, purring and yowling like a loud house cat, it may be dashing through the snow after its favorite meal, the snowshoe hare. In fact, as the population of hares rises and falls in 10-year cycles, so does the lynx. About a century ago, the lynx was not an unusual sight in Colorado. Then its numbers decreased sharply. The state's last known specimen was killed near Vail in 1973. Biologists decided reintroduction was the only way to bring it back to Colorado in the remote San Juan Mountains. And though restoration has had some success, you might never see a Canada lynx in the wild. Even experienced hunters rarely encounter this secretive, nocturnal, and beautiful cat. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've chosen our next book to read together. It's called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. The project began when her 25-year marriage fell apart. The first thing that kind of rocked my world was how much it hurt. 
after thinking my whole life that heartbreak was sort of melodramatic and my friends were going through it, I, I just thought it was um, that they were being a little bit, you know, histrionic. But actually, you know, when it happened to me, I was like, oh my God, this is so devastating. And I felt it in my body. Like I had been plugged into an amplifier. Like I was like buzzing with anxiety and grief and fear. We've chosen her book as counter-programming ahead of the Valentine's Day barrage. So read Heartbreak and then meet us where else but Loveland, Colorado, Wednesday, February 7th. We'll be at the Rialto Theater, where Williams will also discuss the science of bouncing back. It really blew me away, this advice I got that I had never heard before, that we can find resilience in beauty. And that if we can learn to cultivate beauty, um, we can become more resilient. Again, Heartbreak by Florence Williams is our latest pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. More information and tickets for our February 7th recording at Loveland's Rialto Theater at CPR.org slash turn the page. of a heartbreak lost love loneliness memories of your caress so divine i wish you were mine again my dear i'm on the sea of tears sea of a heartbreak and that is our show for today with thanks to these heartbreakers tyler bender carl bielek anthony cotton pete kramer andrea dukakis rachel estabrook Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC. 